Thank you for so gently taking us to this moment. The Reverend Kate Braestrup in her book, Beginner's Grace, Bringing Prayer to Life, says this about prayer. I won't claim that prayer can get you a new car or find the lover of your dreams. It won't help you gain status, assert your dominance, or otherwise please your ego. It won't even make life easier, she says. What it can do, what prayer at its best and at our best has always done, is help us to live consciously, honorably, and compassionately. She goes on to say, because I am not stronger, more self-sufficient, smarter, braver, or any less mortal than my forebearers or my neighbors, I need this help, this help to live more consciously, honorably, compassionately. As long as prayers, she says, as long as prayers help me be more loving, then I need prayer. As long as prayer serves as a potent means of sharing my love with others, then I need prayer. What Malcolm X experienced in his pilgrimage, in his prayer, was potent. It allowed a kind of love to emerge among those on that pilgrimage. It helped erase the problem of white supremacy and white privilege. Malcolm X, through his religious community and the potency of that community's prayers and practices, he had a glimpse of a space where racial oppression was absent. This really caught my attention when I read this again. It caught my attention for a number of reasons, and first and foremost among them is I immediately started thinking about Christianity and how, it, certainly in the United States, Christianity has been deeply perverted by whiteness. This was true in Malcolm's time, and it is true now. Think about this for just a minute. Think about this in the context of your own life. Think about the images so many of us have seen of the blue-eyed, blonde-haired, kind of effeminate, white Jesus. Right? Think about the images of God as a bearded, white, heavenly father, kind of maybe looking fierce or a little tired about things. (laughs) People. But white. In fact, I remember, as I was thinking about this sermon, I remember at my grandmother's house, on the wall in her kitchen, there was this picture of a very white, very blue-eyed, very blonde-haired Jesus in this flowing robe, just kind of walking across the water, like that. And I don't mean to make fun of that tradition, but it's crazy. (laughs) Not the walking on water, that may have happened, the whiteness. (laughs) It reminds me of this shirt, it reminds me of this shirt that I once saw that said the biggest miracle Jesus ever performed was being a white guy in the Middle East. Jesus wasn't white. (laughs) He, in all likelihood, in all likelihood, he had beautiful brown skin or even black skin. He was not white. 
But that's how Jesus is depicted in this country. So white Christianity and its practices haven't erased the race problem. In fact, as many of you probably know, during the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was white Christians, primarily Southern Christians, who would gather after their worship service on Sunday morning to attend a lynching. Somehow their faith and the whiteness of their faith could not penetrate the disconnect from the values and the teachings at the heart of that faith. And so as we move into our racial justice work, and we've just come off this group of 35 people who's doing this first round of training, staff and board members and others, as we move into this work, and we've finished this first part of the training, and the blinders begin to come off of my white eyes, and I can see more clearly the ways that racism targets people of color for the benefit of white people, I think about our Unitarian Universalist faith, our Jewish and Christian roots, and I wonder what the prayers, what the practices are that might hold us, that we might turn to in this racial justice work, that might help us become aware of and even address the whiteness for those of us that are white in our minds and behaviors and attitudes. I wonder what prayers in this tradition, and it's a wide tent tradition we claim, might help us see more clearly, might help us transform ourselves and invite us to help bend that arc of the universe toward justice. Obviously, there are many, many prayers to choose from in many, many traditions that might help us do that. And today, recognizing the variety of prayers out there, I just want to focus on three. The first is Spirit of Life, that hymn we sing every Sunday. And then I want to look at the Lord's Prayer and suggest that that is actually a radical, revolutionary prayer. And then I want to spend just a minute on our last hymn, Lift Every Voice, as three prayers, three prayers of hope that might anchor us. First, let me tell you about Spirit of Life. We sing this song every Sunday in this congregation. It's a part of our worship life, and it's a relatively new piece of our worship life. It wasn't a song we had 40 years ago. There's an article in the Unitarian Universalist World magazine about the history of this song, written by a woman, a white woman named Carolyn McDade. Uh, in the 1980s, Carolyn McDade was a leader in the movement that opposed United States policies in Central America, in Nicaragua, in El Salvador, and Guatemala. She was involved in a, ch- in a church in Boston, a Unitarian Universalist church in Boston, and she chaired their sanctuary committee, which challenged this committee and their actions, challenged the U.S. government policy by offering illegal shelter to political refugees. As a part of that work, she traveled around the United States. She sometimes went on speaking tours. She sometimes moved with refugees from home to home or church to church. Her life was intense with demonstrations and arrests, with threats of legal action and violence, with infiltration and endless meetings. Late one night, in the early 1980s, she was driving a close friend home from one of their meetings, and she was feeling exhausted, tired, in despair. She said to her friend, Pat, I feel like a piece of dried cardboard that has lain in the attic for years. Just open wide the door. 
and I'll be dust. I'm tired, she said. Not with my community, but with the world. And she went into her friend's house and just sat a moment with her friend, taking in that silent support. And then Carolyn McDade went home. She drove home, and she went to her piano and spirit of life, that prayer, that prayer in her own words, which was, may I not drop out of this work of justice-making. May I not drop out of this work of justice-making. May I continue in faith with the movement. That prayer came out of her as she sat at the piano. You know these words, spirit of life, come to me. Stir in my heart. Stir compassion in my heart. Be in my hands, spirit of life. Help me shape life into something closer to justice. Be with me. Come to me now. Help me work with you, spirit of life. Roots hold me close. Wings set me free. And I sit with that prayer, that call to make these hands be instruments of justice in the world, and I believe that is a prayer we can carry with us in our own hearts, in our circles, in the work we do here as a faith community. It's a prayer we can carry with us that will help us deepen our understanding of justice as we look at race and racism and whiteness and really dig into what is racial justice. Spirit of life, come to all of us. And I want to say, when I talk about justice, I'm really talking about a kind of deep Intimacy. Justice is abstract. We talk about it all the time. Social justice, racial justice. But I think at the heart of it is a deep, deep kind of intimacy. And I think it has to begin, almost has to begin with that deep intimacy. I think about the work we did this past year around marriage equality. And at the heart of that work was members of this church, us, sharing deeply personal stories from our own lives, about people we loved and cared about. It was intimate. It was personal. It was real. It was deep. It was intimate justice that we were working on. And it changed hearts and minds. And it started in that intimate space, but it changed a legal system and a structure. As Cornell West says, Justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. It starts in an intimate place, and then it has to take root in public. Spirit of life calls us to be shapers and makers of that justice. It is a prayer we can hold on to and return to in this work. Spirit of life, come, come to us. There is another prayer in the same vein, but more ancient, more ancient than spirit of life. There is another prayer I want to turn to, and this actually has been mentioned a couple of times these past few Sundays in a call to worship and in a, in a sermon. It's a prayer that fascinates me. I didn't grow up 
Catholic or in a Protestant church. I grew up Unitarian Universalist, so I come at this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, with brand new eyes, with a sense of deep curiosity about what's really going on in this prayer. And so I want to share just a bit of this prayer with you. I'm thinking almost all of you must know this prayer by heart, right? Or many of you, right? Let me just see, like, put your hands up. Yeah, right? We totally know this prayer. And what I want to say, so I want to lift up some highlights from this prayer, because this is a prayer that John Dominic Crossan, a white biblical scholar, suggests is actually a tremendously radical, revolutionary manifesto, a, a hymn of hope, a revolutionary prayer. And I want to share some of his writing on this prayer. I also want to, want to tell you in the, in the book of, of Matthew, in the, in the Gospels, when the disciples ask Jesus how to pray, Jesus says, pray in this way. He doesn't say, pray this prayer, exactly like this. He says, pray in this way. And so pay attention to that idea of what is this way that Jesus is talking about. The biblical scholar, John Dominic Crossan, he asked at the front of his book called The Greatest Prayer, this is a book about the Lord's Prayer, called The Greatest Prayer, he says, what if this is a prayer from the heart of Judaism on the lips of Christianity for the conscience of the world? It's a big statement. What if this prayer is a radical manifesto and a hymn of hope for all humanity? Let me say this prayer with you. This is the version from Matthew. And just let the words wash over you. I know at the first service it was interesting. Like I was feeling people's energy in the pew, and people were like, ooh, the Lord's Prayer. Hmm. <laughs> What's up, preacher Justin? <laughs> like, why are you doing that? And I'll come to this after I talk through it a little bit, but there is something about understanding, putting aside the white Jesus that's infiltrated Christianity and probably Unitarian Universalism to some extent, and really looking back at the Bible and the stories and how these prayers and stories speak to oppressed people. If we can't get in there and have some understanding of that, then we've thrown out a source of strength and hope for so many people who live under oppression. Here's our Father. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. John Dominic Crossan suggests, and I want to suggest to you that this prayer is grounded in the notion that what matters most to God or that source of your understanding at the heart of things, what matters most is justice, is justice. The Jewish scriptures, the stuff that Jesus was always quoting in his ministry, going back to these ancient prophets and their calls for justice, those prophets and Jesus, they were crystal clear that God does not want empty prayer or rules or ritual or sacrifices or a bunch of big old hoo-ha. That's not in the Hebrew. 
God doesn't want empty ritual, rules that don't make sense for human beings, prayers that don't lead anywhere, ritual that does nothing, but wants instead that justice be done on the earth. Prayer and faith and justice, prayer and justice are linked. They are two sides of the same coin. They cannot be separated. You cannot just have religious practices without your life bending toward justice. And I don't think you can do justice work without prayer. Let me share a few highlights from this prayer from John Dominic Crossan. He suggests, and I'm guessing some of you, the hang-up point, and this was a hang-up point for me on this prayer at the very beginning, our Father. You're like, all right, bam. (laughs) Patriarchy right there, like heteronormative patriarchy, boom. You're like, oh, I cannot go farther. (laughs) Right? Did I name that? Are you sitting there thinking, oh, the our, yeah, right? Our Father. Mm, Like half the world population. It's like not a good scene. But here's the thing about language. It's fluid, and it's been interpreted, and it's been reinterpreted, and there's all kinds of movement in the original language. And our father could just as easily be understood as householder of the world. I'm not kidding you. Householder of the world, right? You're talking about a community where there are these little households where you were judged on how well you took care of those within your household. You were, at, you were expected in the, in the Jewish tradition to be a good tender, a good householder. Did people have enough food? Did people have what they needed in your household? And so God is the householder of the world with an eye to how is everyone doing? Do people have enough on this in this creation. It's, it could also be understood, Father could also be understood as creator or protector of the world household. It's all metaphor. It's all metaphor. And if you're getting hung up on the metaphor, Father or householder or creator or protector or on language, break through some of the whiteness that we've baked into our Christianity and our understanding of it. And imagine just for a second you're praying to a brown-skinned or a light-skinned God. The point is that a well-run house, a good householder, makes sure that everyone has enough and is cared for. That is what the divine householder wishes for the world. And in this hymn of hope, God's name is hallowed, is made sacred, because the divine householder cares about everyone in the world, regardless of wealth or sexual orientation or gender or race. And the next part, the next part of this prayer is where this justice prayer really takes on its justiciness. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When Jesus spoke these words, the world had seen the Macedonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then finally, as Jesus was speaking in this context, the Roman Empire, the biggest, fiercest one yet. It was all about dominance and slavery. Your kingdom come refers to the divine householder's ruling style, a style in which everyone will have what they need and enough of it, as opposed to the ruling styles of these earthly kingdoms, which relied on violence and oppression and extracted resources from those who needed them. The earthly kingdoms used violence and oppression. The divine vision was about enough for everyone. 
God's kingdom, love's kingdom, if you will, grounded in justice and love can only come into being, into being with our participation. Your kingdom come. Thy will be done. We meet that vision and help make it real in this world. We collaborate. We partner with the spirit of love to make it happen. Give us this day our daily bread. In a time when the Roman Empire exploited the land and those who worked the land and withheld food as a means of control, if you behave, we'll give you some food. The great householder wants there to be food for all. Food does not belong to an empire. Again, this is about just food. The sense that the earth and its bounty, its water, its air, its resources belong to all of us, not to a kingdom or a corporation or the wealthy few. God's kingdom Love's kingdom is present when there is equitable distribution of food for all on earth. And this last piece, this is, this is a remarkable piece in the way we've misunderstood it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' time, and certainly in our own time, one of the primary temptations in front of us is to do violence in the name of God, in the name of our deepest loyalties, in the name of the truth as we see it. But this prayer, this prayer says we must resist that evil because it will never lead to justice. It will never lead to the reign of mutual respect and peace. This is a radical prayer. Jesus not a white man, but a Jew, in the transition time as Christianity was emerging, was with a group of people that had known oppression for a long time. And there had been violence in that history. And he was saying, that cannot be the way of the kingdom. That cannot be the way we respond. It is a radical prayer that lives between Judaism and Christianity. And like our hymn, Spirit of Life, it is a prayer about entering into a relationship and active collaboration with that spirit to bring in a new kingdom, a new way of being. At the first service, I told the congregation, I said, sometimes I think I'm more excited about this prayer than you all <laughs> might, might be. I don't know if that's true or not. But what I know, what has shifted in me, what has shifted in my lens and in my heart has come about because of this first round of training we have done with this racial justice trainer. And what I know is that whiteness has infiltrated Christianity and even Unitarian Universalism. And if we throw all of that out because we had a bad experience or we didn't like the Nicene Creed when we were growing up, and there's good reasons to throw some of that out, but if we throw it all out without understanding what the Bible means to oppressed people, understanding that the story of out of Egypt, of Moses leading the people out of Egypt, is absolutely a story that spoke to African Americans and their liberation from slavery. 
and their underground railroad. If we don't understand how these stories and this prayer and the radicalness of this message, then we miss the power that the Bible has for people who have been oppressed. And I worry that if we don't spend time there, we don't allow our souls to grow and to do the justice work they might do. The final prayer that I want to lift up today is our closing hymn, Lift Every Voice. And you can read these words when I sing the hymn, but this hymn, as many of you probably know, is also known as the Black National Anthem. It is a prayer. It is a prayer of resilience and hope in the face of racism, slavery, lynching, and unspeakable violence against people of color. And in the face of all of those things, it is a hymn about remaining true to the God of love and justice and freedom. Lift Every Voice and Sing was first performed as a poem on the celebration of Abraham Lincoln's birthday on February 12th in 1900. Five years later, it was set to music. And most recently, in 2009, it was used by the Reverend Joseph Lowry, who quoted the whole third stanza at the inauguration of Barack Obama. Spirit of life and the Lord's prayer and lift every voice. They tell us something about how to do justice work. And since we're in a sermon series around prayer, I want to close with a prayer. Will you pray with me to the Spirit, to the God, to the source of your understanding? Spirit of life and love, spirit of justice, help us keep forever in the path, we pray. The path of justice and love, the path of freedom and liberation. May all of our prayers and practices become ever more just. Amen.